Psalm 2 has been helpful for me. And I hope it's helpful. It's a resource we need in a year like this. It's a resource we need in a day like this of great upheaval and intense political and social debate. Growing up, my family uh, began to take vacations in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, which is right on the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, I was, a, and still am, a Midwestern boy gr growing up around the Great Lakes in the Mickey Mouse waves of Lake Erie. And we would uh, go to the beach. That was the, the daily thing that we did and slather on the sunscreen. And then I began swimming in the Atlantic Ocean where the waves were so much bigger, so much more exciting. And I remember um, that as I was swimming in the Atlantic Ocean, the waves would like, be bigger than I'd ever seen before. And uh, something compelled me out to, to swim. I, I, I was like swimming out like, whoa, this is going to be great. And I took a, you know, a little bodyboard with me. And, and sometimes I could time it right where the wave would actually lift me up and kind of become like my wings. And I would be in, I would be in the North Carolina sky going from one end of the, of the, of the beach to the other end of the beach. And it was so much fun just feeling the surge and the power getting involved in the ocean. But you know, more often than not, you know what happened? Some of you who have swam in the ocean know what happened to me. I didn't time it right. So I'd swim out to the little wave, and the wave would be like, yeah. And I'd be like, oh, cool, I'm going to ride the wave. And then the wave would ride me. And I would get crushed. I would like, be, be thrown about like a rag doll getting salt water in every crevasse in my face and, and all kinds of cross currents. The power was too much for me to handle and I, and I, wasn't, I wasn't able to, to sink with it. And so all I could do after wiping out was to, was to stagger out and just go back to our area of towels because <laughs> I didn't want any more of the waves. I swam out, really excited. Then I wiped out. Then I tapped out. And I think there is a similar pattern as it relates to us engaging power. Us engaging current events of our day. We swim out in excitement. Then we wipe out because it's way too much for us to handle, and then we tap out. You and I are living in an age of great political unrest and great social change. Let's just start with the election. This is a highly unusual election, is it not? Have you heard of it? <laughs> okay, four. Okay, and you know what? It started well over a year ago, and even before. And a lot of us have been paying attention. For many of us, it's been an emotional roller coaster, hasn't it? It's been exciting, it's been scary, it's been intense. Let's talk about globally. Have you seen the images coming in from Aleppo? Have you seen the, did you see the picture of the little boy? Did you see the videos of the brothers consoling each other after they lost their brother? Little, little boys consoling each other. 
That civil war is one of the worst civil wars in all of human history, and it's only getting worse. Global powers are invested. They're way too invested to uninvest right now. And we're like, what can we do? What can be done about this? Um, and in the last few years, right here in Chicago and all over the country, we've been having an intense, prolonged conversation about race, about shootings, about justice, about the police. A lot of strong feelings swirling around here. A lot of strong feelings. Okay? Meanwhile, people continue to get shot. This is not hypothetical. In our city, just miles from here, or actually, there was a man who died right in front of Uplift High School last week, this, in this past week. So this is not a hypothetical conversation. There is so much right now to be outraged about. There's so much to be worried about. There's so much to, to be divided about. And many of us, because we're committed to following Jesus, we're like, you know what? I don't want to hide from this. I don't want to disengage from public life. I don't want to turn off the news. I want to be involved and be part of the solution. I, I want to be part of, of what Jesus is doing. I want to do good. I want to do right. And so we don't tune out. We stay involved. We stay engaged. We want to love our neighbor. We want to seek their best. Have you been drawn into conversations about what's going on? Drawn into social media conversations about social issues and political issues? Have you swum out? Because it's like, I want to time this wave right. There's a way for me to be involved. I want to be involved. Maybe some of us swim out because we hear about someone who has a plan. And we're like, I like that plan. I can be a part of that plan. Someone's calling us to make a difference. Someone inspires us and we're like, yes. Or maybe someone scares us so much we're like, I can't not swim out and do something about this. I can't not speak out. Maybe there's been a, a glaring injustice that has roused us from our chairs there's concern for the future of our city or our country or our world, and we're like, I'm going to get involved here. And then we get out, and the wave starts to crest, and we realize how complicated the currents are. We realize how deep the injustice is, and the system that we're trying to reform ends up swallowing us. We get overwhelmed, or the leader that we believed in turns on us. Or maybe the, the protest becomes, becomes violent, it turns dark, and we're like, I did not sign up for this. So we lose steam or we wipe out. We swam out, and then we wiped out, and then all we can do at that point is just tap out. We can just stagger out. We're just like, I don't want any more of this. I'm getting off Facebook for good this time. Don't talk to me. We began, we swam out as optimists, and then we stagger out as pessimists. Have, have you asked yourself yet this year, what kind of people have we become in the process of engaging public life? How has this political season shaped our souls? Have you ever thought about how it's forming you and discipling you and apprenticing you? There is a more excellent way than swimming out, wiping out, and tapping out from public life. 
we do not need the people of God tapping out. There's already enough cynicism in the system. There's already enough despair. There's already enough passivity. We've got a city full of cynics because they, they swam out and then they wiped out and then they tapped out and they're like, all I'm going to do is survive. We don't need survivors, friends. We need the people of God empowered by the Holy Spirit to go forth to love our neighbors. We need more love in the system, not more idealism. We need more love. We do need vision, and that's different from idealism. It's more humble than idealism. Friends, where does this come from? It starts with a confidence that God's king is reigning. It starts with a great confidence that the living God who oversees all of human history has established a king whose rule is good and right. At the end of this era that we're in, at the end of history, he will bring all things together and make all things right. We need confidence that he is not off somewhere, that he has not stopped paying attention. We need confidence to know that God's king is on the throne and that he's reigning and that he's at work in our world. And somehow that king has got to pour his love into us to overflowing so that we can love our neighbor as he loves them. We need love, we need power to irrigate. Friends, listen, we need to irrigate our city and our networks with the love of God in Christ. And the only way that's going to happen is if we have confidence that he's reigning, if he gives us the power of his spirit to do just that. So how's that going to happen? We need to learn how to pray the Psalms. We need to dip back into this ancient resource. We have one right here, Psalm 2. It's a political psalm, but it's a very spiritual psalm as well. This psalm can shape us individually. It can shape us as God's people. I think social media has been shaping us a little too much. We need the Psalms to shape us more than social media shaping us. Why? Because Psalm 2 is going to teach us how to kiss the sun while the nations rage. Psalm 2 will teach us how to take our cues from the Lord even as we engage the powers of the world. It's going to keep us in the game, friends. It's going to get us out of this dark cycle of swimming out, wiping out, and tapping out. Psalm 2 is the presidential inauguration of King David and every king that came after him. It looked forward and pointed to God's true king, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, not only of Israel, but of all of the nations. Jesus quoted it again and again, talking about himself. This psalm was pointing to me, he said, over and over again. And the earliest Christians recognized that. We need Psalm 2 in 2016, and we're going to need it next year, too, when the election's over, and we say yet again, well, this is the most important election of, the, of, of our lifetime. Everybody says that because we are so filled with hubris that ours is the cultural moment. We need Psalm 2. We need Psalm 2 to raise our vision, to look to the true king, to learn from the true king, to show loyalty to the true king, and kiss that sun while the nations rage. And Jesus can show us the way. He is the way into public life. He understands it perfectly. He engaged it perfectly. And then he sent his spirit upon us, his people, so that we could continue the rule that he started. 
if we don't, this is so important. This is not a side spirituality conversation, my friends. If we don't learn this, we will miss a grand opportunity to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We'll miss that opportunity if we ignore Psalm 2, regard it as irrelevant, if we don't learn how to pray it. There's a beautiful and just and right way for the kingdom to advance in our day in a way that will reverberate in eternity. So let's look at what Psalm 2 teaches us, and let's begin to pray it. Psalm 2 is going to teach us three things, give us insight there. First, it's going to give us insight into God's perspective on power. As God looks at human history, as he looks at this election, as he looks at the, the, the social issues of our day, he's got, he has perspective that we need. Secondly, it's going to teach us about God's expression of power. How does God enter human history? How does he reign and rule in human history? And then finally, it's going to give us God's expectation for those in power. God's expectation. What, is he, what does he expect of you and me who live on this earth, who have influence, who have capacity to show loyalty, who have capacity to create, who have capacity to, to have influence over other people? What's his expectation? So it's God's perspective and then it's God's expression of power, and then God's expectation on all of us. Let's look at God's perspective on power, verses 1 through 4. As God looks upon the events of our day, he regards them as superficially impressive. Superficially impressive. We're really impressed with ourselves. We are so self-serious, and we need God's perspective. The psalmist is almost shaking his head in disbelief at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why is it the peoples are, uh, the, the nations are raging about something? There's outrage about something. And then there's other people who are plotting. What does this mean? Now, some of you, you've seen Lake Michigan on a really peaceful day. And sometimes that's how history is. It's just really peaceful. It can be like that for a few years, hundreds of years. But have you ever seen Lake Michigan in the middle of a storm where it's just tempest, where, there's, where there is a lot of waves, even though it's just one of the Great Lakes, where, there's, where this is, it's fearsome. You wouldn't want to get involved because, because Lake Michigan is raging. Human history has the capacity to rage, and we are in the midst of a, of a season of upheaval. Of, of foment. We see this in internet mobs of all stripes. There's all kinds of internet mobs out there. And they're ready to, they're looking for people to destroy and publicly shame. Um, we, we see this um, in the public. There's, there's new levels of violence now in our country, in the cities, but, but in places where you wouldn't think there'd be lots of violence. In rural areas now, there's violence. There's foment, there, there's hate, there's anger. And underneath all of that foment is the plotting. It's the, it's the people with the keys and the money and the votes and the power and the public opinion. And they're planning something, they're plotting something. The psalmist says it's in vain, but they think they're really smart. They're planning a scheme. Powerful people meeting in secret to conspire. 
Now, friends, this is not just global leaders, but it's also influential people who work, um, who, uh, any, anybody who's influential who closes the door to make their plans, which can happen at a global summit or at the DMV. It can happen anywhere there's any kind of power. Decision makers and gatekeepers conspire to keep their power and influence consolidated. If you don't think this is happening, you're naive. It does happen everywhere. People are plotting in our day, secretly. Um, did you see the news about the EpiPen? Anybody? It, it's the outrage of the week, and it's not, it's not like it's an illegitimate outrage, but... So the EpiPen that people depend on to stay alive, um, it costs a few dollars to make, and they just raise the price several hundred dollars per pen, and the CEO just got an $18 million bonus. You know where that came from? Secret, secret plans. You know, let's do this. Let's do... We, could, we could adjust things a little bit. The people will pay. They need to. And now and then, so, so people are plotting, and then the nations rage. We all found out, some of us found out about it on social media or in the news. Both groups are trying to control each other, and it's a feedback loop. The nations rage, they protest, but then the, the leaders, they plot, and, and both sides are trying to influence and control one another, and in some cases, making the problem worse. It and it happens in our city, and it happens in our neighborhood. And it feels like we're making history. And in one level, you are making history. We are making history. But there's something vain about it all. Much of the raging and plotting ends up folding on itself. Don't get me wrong. The consequences are real, very real. And in some cases, they are devastating. But the consequences are not as planned as the peoples and the nations thought they would. They're not as permanent as everybody thought they would be. The plotting and the raging, look, are intended to be consequential on one level, and they're completely different and completely other than what was planned. For instance, let's look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is a description of any ruler who resists God's true king. There are people at every level of power, every level of influence, saying, I'm not accountable to anybody except me. So they make alliances with other people to stay in power, to keep their wealth. And they imagine, hey, I'm kind of like God in this circumstance. In fact, I'm more powerful than God. I've got the money. I've got the power. All my plans have come to fruition. Who can stop me? In verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You know, listen, when people laugh, it's a sign that they have the capacity to keep things in perspective. Okay? Um, the living God has that capacity. Let's not imagine God doesn't have the full range of human emotions of the creatures he created. He knows the thoughts and the schemes of everyone who is impressed with themselves. 
and he regards their self-importance as superficially impressive. Okay, true confession. Laura and I sometimes laugh while the children rage. <laughs> and then when they start plotting, we really laugh. That's not to say we don't love them. That's not to say we're not concerned with their hearts and the consequences of their actions. We see all too well, all too well, and it, sometimes it grieves us. But there's sometimes when we have to laugh to keep things in perspective. That's God's perspective on all of the outrage right now, all the plotting. It's superficially impressive, and he's not impressed. So what, how does he express his power? How does he take action? God's expression of power is that he exalts his true king who will reign forever. Uh, Old Testament scholar John Golden Gay uh, noted that if laughter is a sign that you can keep things in perspective, anger is a sign that you have the capacity to take meaningful action. Now, I don't trust me or you with anger, but I trust God with anger because he can express it perfectly without sinning. Them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Now, that's, this is better translated. You may, he's giving the king a choice. God has established his king, he gives him the choice. You may rule or shepherd them with a rod of iron, directing their events. Or you may dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, you might be uncomfortable hearing that. Is God violent? Is he, is he just willy-nilly, kind of like one of the global leaders today that's just killing people for the sake of it? No. This is in reference to God's capacity to shatter systems of evil and injustice and to stop it completely. The world is waiting for a king who will truly be sent by God and will truly submit themselves to God. Think about this. What if that happened in Chicago? Can you imagine if like the mayor was truly sent from God and truly submitted himself to God in all of the major decisions he made or she made? Can you imagine if all the aldermen were truly anointed by God and submitted themselves to God? Can you imagine if all the CEOs of all the major corporations and media outlets in Chicago were truly submitted to God? If all the judges, if the, Cook County states, or if the Cook County attorney, if the state's attorney, if the governor, if the speaker of the house here in Illinois, if they truly submitted themselves to God and it was not about ego at all and not about money at all and not corrupt at all, can you imagine what would happen in our city? We are hungry for a leader like this. We are hungry for someone who is submitted to God and sent by God. The world is waiting for a king like this. And there's only one true king. Others may follow him, but there's only one true king like this. And it's the one that God himself anointed and established and said, you, you can reign. I'm sending you and I trust you to make all the decisions and all the major choices that you're going to have to make as king. But I'm establishing you as king. I'm anointing you as king.
Now, if Psalm 2 is the acorn, Jesus Christ is the tree in full flower. What does this kind of king look like in real life? You know what he looks like? He looks like Jesus Christ. And you know what Jesus Christ did? When he, he moved into the neighborhood, he became one of us. He, he got really close to the hurting and to the diseased. He humbled himself again and again. You know what he did? He totally trusted the Father to have his back. So he did not play treacherous games with his power. He laid his power down. He washed feet with his power. He came so close, he came close enough to heal. In the words of J.R. Tolkien, that the king's hands are the hands of healing. That's the kind of king he was. He humbled himself and he trusted the father. And you know what the father did in response to all that trust and all that submission? Again and again, you know what the father said over Jesus? You are my son. He said it at his baptism. He said it at his transfiguration. And, he, and, he, and ultimately, he said it at his resurrection. Je Jesus said, Father, I trust you. I trust you. I'll go here. And the Father said, then I'll make this your throne. And anyone who wants to be part of the renewal of all things will follow you and find life in you. This is the front door to the kingdom of God. This is the throne of Jesus Christ. He was shattered so that we could be healed. Not only individually, but also citywide, neighborhood-wide, worldwide. When Jesus went to the cross for all of us, and he went to the cross to heal any devastation that you or I or anyone else have caused each other. That's the kingship of Jesus Christ. He was submitted to his father, and the father said in response, you are my son. You are my son. I will exalt you in the earth. I trust you enough to exalt you. This is the kind of king we have, friends. He made this cross not only a sign of victory, not only the throne of his son, not only the place of our healing, but also the center of history, towering over all other kingdoms, friends, towering over the 2016 presidential election, towering over our current conversation on race, towering over every power struggle that you are currently involved in right now. It casts a long but hopeful shadow there's a refuge here. There's no refuge from him, but there's an incredible refuge in him, as Derek Kidner says. When all other kings and all other kingdoms fail, this king will be standing and this kingdom will be reigning. God's perspective on power is that it's superficially impressive. But when he expresses power, he's exalting a true king, the one we've always wanted. Verses 10 through 12. One Old Testament scholar describes these next verses as kind of pelting the powerful with commands. Can you see it? It's sort of like pelting the powerful, which includes you and me, with commands. In light of the cross, in light of God's true king, what does the psalmist say? Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is a call, friends, to submit to the king who is himself submitted to the father. Do you see this? Do you see this pattern? 
Jesus submitted himself to the Father as he went about his kingship. And when we follow him, when we take refuge in him, we are submitted to Jesus. We are entrusting the outcome of the power struggle to him. We are entrusting the outcome of our reputation to him. We are entrusting the outcome of the election to him. We are entrusting the outcome of all of human history and our entire life to him. We're trusting him. That means that we're going to lay aside things that we were trying to control before. Sometimes that means that we're going to not post what we were going to post. That we were not going to pat ourselves on the back for being on the right side of history yet again. Sometimes it means that we are going to withhold words. Not always. Sometimes it means we're going to speak with the power of the Spirit. But in any case, it's time to wise up. It's time to get smart because there is a true king, and we need to kiss him. We need to kiss the son. We need to submit to the son, to God's chosen ruler whose kingdom will have no end, resting in him, living for him. We kiss the son while the nations rage. We submit to Jesus as he submitted to the Father. We let love, not fear, fuel our public engagement. Did you hear me? To let love, not fear, fuel our public engagement. Devotion to King Jesus oftentimes looks like love for neighbor, especially our enemies. One of my favorite stories about Martin Luther King is that when he was early on in the civil rights movement, he got a threatening phone call saying, you better stop what you're doing or we're going to bomb your house. And then later, later that night, he was sitting at the kitchen table with his Bible open and he heard Jesus say, stand up for truth, stand up for justice, stand up for righteousness, and I will never leave you alone. No, never alone. I will never leave you, never ever leave you alone. In that moment, he felt called despite the fact that it scared him to death, to swim towards the wave in the power of Jesus Christ. And he let the Montgomery, bus or the Montgomery Clergy Association bus boycott elect him as president, even though he was scared to death. And they were all cowards. But, you know, they were like, hey, why don't you be in charge? And he's like, okay, Jesus called me. You know what happened a few nights after that phone call and after that conversation with Jesus? He was at a meeting, his wife and child were at home, and his house was bombed. Did you know this? That Martin Luther King's house was bombed with his wife and child inside? He came back. There was a mob of people armed to the teeth, ready to riot in response to the bombing. Police were outnumbered. He pushes through the crowd to make sure his wife and daughter were okay, and they were. And then he comes back to the crowd and he says, put your weapons down and love your enemy. Totally blew away the crowd. Totally blew away the police. They were not expecting this. They were expecting violence. They were expecting format. They were expecting a power struggle. Martin Luther King said, love your enemies and tell them that you love them. That's speaking in the power of the king, if I've ever heard it. Would we in our day have the power that Martin Luther King had? Do you know where he got that? He got that from the true king. He got that by kissing the sun while the nations raged. And when the wave tried to overpower him and even kind of promise that it would raise him to the heights, do you know what he did? He was able to resist the wave in the power of the spirit. 
and say, no, 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 we're not going that way. I'm not wiping out with you in a, in, in a rage of fury. I'm kissing the sun in this moment. And you know what the sun did? Is the sun laid down his life for his enemies. Would we have that power in our day? Who are your enemies? Kissing the sun begins with asking him for the power to love your enemies. Do you have someone that you're holding a grudge against because of the election? Do you have someone that you're holding a grudge against because of the conversation on race? Do you have somebody that you resent and look down on? Can you love them this week? Because that is what it would look like to engage public life in the power of the Son of God. That's what it would look like for you to kiss the Son and follow in the way of the cross. That's what it would look like for heaven's kingdom to come down to earth would be for you to love your enemies. Can you imagine if we all did that together? Can you imagine? Friends, that's what the Lord is calling us to at Emmanuel Anglican. He is calling us to kiss the sun by loving our enemies. And there's only one way you can do this. We've got to do this together. We can't be split up into tribes, tribes of people with different, different viewpoints. We can't be tribal. We can't be divided. We can't be self-righteous and judgy. We've got to be humble, and we've got to be united, and we've got to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow King Jesus. That's what it would look like to kiss the sun in between now and the election in November and beyond. My friends, this is our birthright. This is our calling. Let me pray for you using a prayer from a devotional on Psalm 2. A pastor theologian wrote this prayer, and I loved it, and I want to pray it over all of us. Lord, your answer to the chaos and strife of the world is your son, Jesus Christ. He will eventually break brokenness, kill death, destroy destruction, and swallow every sorrow. Teach us how to take refuge in you, in your forgiveness through Jesus, in your wise will, and in our assured, glorious future. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.